Welcome, everybody, to the Current Events Podcast with Max and Colborn. My name is Max Cohen. I will be one of your hosts for today. And joining me, as always, my co-host in the Current Events Podcast, the founder of the Museum of Crypto Art, Mr. Colborn Bell. What is up, Colborn? How are you doing? I am super. Max, how are you today? Uh, I am great, and I'm even better because I didn't go to Miami Art Basel. So I didn't have to travel. I didn't have to go sit in traffic. I didn't have to be in Florida. So I'm just <laughs> absolutely peachy. Is that the worst punishment of them all? I tweeted this out the other day, and it didn't get nearly as much love as I was hoping or that I would have thought. But the idea of willingly going to Florida and spending like <laughs> significant time there, uh, I just I don't understand the thinking. And oh, you've just alienated cool. about half of the, the NFT user base. That's okay. Um, maybe I can alienate the other half by the end of this podcast. Yeah. You know, we've never been very good at, at courting everybody. <laughs> you have our <laughs> small group of people who care about what we do and who we haven't yet alienated. But again, keep listening to the podcast. And of course, we will implicate you eventually. You will be alienated. Yeah, you will be alienated. We guarantee it on the current events podcast. If this is your first time listening to what we do here, we are going to talk about, uh, no surprises here, current events. We do not prepare for this podcast very much. I have a couple of topics. Colborne has some topics. We're going to just throw them at each other and kind of get each other's off-the-cuff ideas and thoughts. So, Colborne, let's just jump right in. Our first current event of the week is, I think, the most interesting thing to come out of Art Basel, which, of course, is the Tezpol. Tezpol. The Tezpol. Hashtag Tezpol, money sign poll. Um, what has basically become the first like widespread crypto art meme that I can remember since um, Kevin, the Pixelmon zombie. Uh, Tezpol was the Tezos Foundation's heavily quote unquote exhibition um, at Art Basel. Um, and for those of you that hadn't seen it, um, it's basically exactly what it sounds like. It was a poll in what seemed to be a hotel lobby, like a literal like cylinder or a pillar in the center of a room with what seemed to be like eight to 12 different screens kind of hastily attached to it. And yeah, like wrapped in glorified chicken wire with these tiny little screens attached to it, these dangling wires. Idiots. Yeah, it was not great. And it, uh, it called to mind the um, NFT London quote unquote exhibition from a couple years ago, which was like a room with a couple of like wheeled in AV carts um, that were displaying <laughs> art on them. And it was really interesting to see the response to this because when Tezpol was first being seen and disseminated through Twitter, it became this like massive joke. And to the point that uh, just two hours ago, the Tezos Foundation talked about their Art Basel experience. You know, they were thanking people, they put on, um, quote, seminars, poetry readings, and music with work from 50 plus artists on display. But the third tweet in their thread was an apology for a presentation that did not meet our standards. We sincerely apologize for the errors made and frustration caused to exhibitors. Um, we made the producer and co-curator of the event aware that we are extremely disappointed. So anyways, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can let that sit for a second. But I wanted to talk about Tezpol. I really think it's interesting from two perspectives. 
And I think we should start with the meme perspective because that is really, I think, the important takeaway from this whole Tez poll experience, which is how the crypto art community can take something that by all means should be like degrading and infuriating and turn it into something celebratory. Um, I saw that uh, like the hashtag Tez poll hashtag on Tezos was like taken up by artists and uh, Violet Bond uh, is the person who I believe put this st these statistics together, but 642 artworks were minted, 93, I'm sorry, 94,000 total editions of these artworks were minted from uh, 489 different artists, basically playing on Tezpol. Uh, and if you go through this list of these pieces, it's kind of incredible, the like artistic outburst that has come out of this single piece of iconography. Um, and I just want to talk about like the way that memes disseminate and what a meme in crypto art means in this moment. Um, so let's get there in a second. But Coburn, what was your initial reaction to seeing the Tez fall? Well, you know, I thought, of course, it was embarrassing. It felt uh, probably unfairly isolated, but it does speak to, again, a problem of just display in <laughs> in the real world. Um and, you know, the cost, I remember I was at the original Art Basel where Tezos did a pretty beautiful, I mean, they were a core sponsor, I think, of, of Basel. And they did a really beautiful exhibition. I forget whose work it was. It was probably Mario Klingman's, Quasimondo's work. And, and, and that was, you know, exceptional and beautiful. So, you know, talk about a far fall from grace. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the beauty of lemons to lemonade that these artists, uh, you know, can can turn what is something so disastrous and so silly and make it into a cultural moment, uh, a la Kevin. I have always thought that, you know, crypto art wins when it is responding to art in the moment, creating and disseminating. I think nobody really was better than kind of a lot of money at that, this cross between memetics, online digital culture, this dissemination, and then responsiveness. You know, another great artist who, who plays with this a lot uh, is Mohara. And this is, this is really where, where it wins. And, you know, it's not like anybody is out there right now constructing a physical recreation of the Tez pole. Um, but you know, within days, again, hundred thousand artworks minted, it speaks for itself. Yeah. I mean, like uh, our own metaverse architect, untitled XYZ created a mocha room in the shape yeah. of the Tezpol. And I think that there's such value in that, but it's also, I, I agree that it's inspiring, but it's also, I think an interesting, uh, evocation. I of mean, it's, how, it's yeah. as equally inspiring as it is absolutely and terribly pathetic. But we need to know what our domain is. You know, I, I, we were talking about this last week. We really don't need to be down there playing in this way and trying to justify any sort of digital artwork on a TV screen. That is, for me, that is really just the death of everything that we are creating is trying to bring in new and active users by showing these works on TV screens. As opposed to seeing them in the metaverse or seeing them as in the opposed to seeing them in the metaverse, right? It was three and a half years ago that 
you know, the museum was born in VR and going into these environments, it's something else entirely. It's a much more spectacular, much more interesting experience. Uh, this is not the bridge we need to be building, trying to bring these works. You know, you want to do, again, as Tezos did, I think it was two years ago, like an interactive display in which art is created real time from a feedback loop in which your image of standing there is run through some sort of neural image processing overlay and you know it is captured that is super super cool right that's that's a real exhibition but just you know again wrapping a pole and chicken wire and putting eight hastily thrown screens it's just not it you know it reminds me of a couple things i mean we know that like i've seen john orion young joy do these kind of metaverse like in within met not within metaverse within vr in real time art creations i know easter tray does a lot of that um i interviewed metageist a couple years ago for a story on like the possibilities of using the metaverse and vr for crypto art and especially for crypto art display and he told me a story which i'm going to paraphrase but he was working um with a selection of seniors from i believe like a nursing home and he had them like create art and then he would like digitize it in a vr environment and he would put give them the goggles be able to blow it up into these incredible sizes um, and the feeling of seeing these works that they had physically created turned into these like mammoth monoliths um, was in his words, like very, very uh, revealing and fulfilling. And the reactions he got displayed that. Do you think this is just, I mean, I, I hate, I don't hate, but it's a little frustrating that we have to keep that I keep mentioning him, but like the work that like Rafik Anadol does with displays right, which is accessible only to the very, very highest end of uh, individuals uh, who either have the money or um, sponsorship to be able to afford that. For the other 99.9% .9 of artists, do you think that it's just the nature of trying to port these works onto screens in the real world, that it will always be somewhat disappointing? Look, it's just not moving the needle. You know, I get as an artist wanting to show and say it, and it's, it's for sure, it's a marketing thing. Your work is being shown at Art Basel, and that's probably more important than how the work is actually being shown. But to me, it's uninteresting when there is, <laughs> you know, like the premier art fair with the greatest works from all over the world. And then you run across, you know, an exhibition that is TV screens and there's glare and the lighting is wrong. And it just, in contrast, looks like crap. And it makes us look amateur. It makes us look unprofessional. Um, whereby there are experiences that can be had with digital art that are truly profound and transformative that bring people to a place beyond where a physical work could. And it's, it is that plus plus that in my mind moves the needle. But I'm going to I'm going to stop you there, because I think that that's a really interesting way to introduce like the mimetic underpinnings of this thing, because it does seem we've talked a million times about how crypto art is the Internet made into an art movement and seeing these works on their own in an exhibition is one thing. But seeing the outpouring of, like you said, 100,000 editions minted of 600 works thrown all together into these hashtags and just kind of like, I don't know, consuming a Twitter feed, like that itself is exhibitional in its own sense. That is a collective cultural moment that speaks to something more powerful than any individual artist could particularly facilitate. And that is, that is more interesting to me, this new dynamic of coming together and creating all of this cultural content that sits as a legacy for the moment 
um, in which it was created. Yeah, but that, but see, this is this is why I think it's so radical and interesting is because you have this physical exhibition that obviously did a piss poor job of exhibiting the artists. But because of that, because of its ridiculousness, it was turned into a meme. And because it was turned into a meme, the actual exhibition gets to take place. And that exhibition has no bounds. It has no curators. It's completely decentralized because it's just people minting artwork whenever they want. It's going to appear to people in completely different ways, depending on when they're online, who they follow and who they're seeing and which artworks are taking off as like, you know, are, are getting minted in droves and which are not. And so the exhibition, as it takes place on social media, this quote unquote exhibition that is, again, not curated, but just inspired by the way information is disseminated through the internet, that's so much more interesting. And that seems so much truer to the spirit of crypto art. But of course, it's something that you can't plan for. You can't put together. That has to be picked up organically in the form of this meme. So I think strangely and somewhat irrationally, the Tezpol exhibition, I don't think that they intentionally intentionally designed it to be turned into a meme, but nevertheless, we can see a through line here between something like Kevin, which was so ridiculous and so bad that it became kind of a cultural touchstone. This Tezpol, which was so ridiculous and so bad that it became another kind of cultural touchstone. And thereafter, the again, like this actual exhibition or this more accurate exhibition of crypto art was able to take place. And there is something, I'm not sure if it's programmable, but like definitely studyable about that dynamic, don't you think? I, I don't think it's replicable is the thing, right? It, it has to come with when expectations are really high and you absolutely crater them. It's almost like, you know, that meme of uh, when the PFP project was minting and then it's like, oh, the founder died after mint. <laughs> right? It's something that is, is so absurd in its reality that it's almost impossible to believe that it sparks like this. How could this have possibly happened? Right, Pixelmon raised $100 million. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is what they generated, some like stock pixel thing that they just bought. And, you know, Tezos has a reputation as being very artist positive and forward and for sure, it like fell way, way, way below that standard. And it's, you cannot manufacture these moments hard as you try. And, and this is the, I think, joy and terror of having a central foundation underpinning a decentralized art movement is that the the central body is never going to be able to encapsulate or even reflect like the multitudes that are there. And I think it's an incredible evocation of what is what the Tezos community is, what they stand for and what they find important that this was able to be co-opted and reframed and basically stolen away from the Tezos foundation and reflected back at it from the community. Um, as somebody who doesn't really collect on Tezos and doesn't have a ton of experience with the Tezos ecosystem, I feel like I suddenly and all at once get it, like what it's about, what the, why people are so drawn to the Tezos ecosystem, why it has maintained serious cultural relevance, despite the obvious infrastructural problems of both the blockchain and whatever the foundation is capable of putting on. Um, and we don't see that a ton on ETH. Maybe that's just because minting costs are so much higher, but there seems to be like such a, um, a much more powerful ability to cooperate and um, react to one another on Tezos than exists elsewhere. 
you know, th that is the, that's the strength of community and, and frictionless interaction. And um, that is really what it's all about. And, you know, I continue to, to stress that it, this, this won't happen on ETH increasingly, you know, mm -hmm. it's going to happen in pockets outside of ETH and, and that's okay. You know, maybe, maybe fine art continues to find, you know, examples of itself on ETH, but it's, it's not for me what is interesting about what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's almost impossible, especially as gas fees go up and remain high. The, again, the ability of crypto art to reflect the internet sensibilities is not matched in Ethereum. Ethereum is a counterintuitive blockchain, I think, for what um, crypto art seeks to be, which is reactionary, which is mimetic, which is like super momentary. Um, and you know, this is something we've talked about a lot with the trash artists and the spam artists, but I'm not sure that that ethos is even possible on Ethereum anymore, or maybe it never really was, at least since, you know, it, late it 2020. Was. Yeah, probably not since, since then. So I do want to touch on like the other side of this, which is just discussing Tezos as a whole, which is, I do think that Tezos artists, while enjoying the decentralization and the rapidity of reactions, there is a call that I see pretty often for Tezos to be taken more seriously and for artists minting on Tezos to be taken more seriously. And I do think that something like the Tezpol undermines that because how can we support Tezos and mass, not you and I, but just like people in general, crypto users in general, when the infrastructure of the blockchain, the foundation at its core does shit like this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, a hundred percent. It's again, this double standard of, you know, they, did a lot of marketing uh, trying to attract fine artists to their platform, but it is a, it's a bit of a bait and switch. They are of course, subject to the extreme volatility of the crypto markets. When things are going up, they can do incredible things, but when things are at the bottom as they are right now, well, you, you kind of are left with what you get. And there is of course, some expectation that they had to be there, but you know, I would imagine that the funding that was once available to the title sponsor of Art Basel is obviously no longer there to the point where, you know, you get a, a chicken wire wrapped pole with eight TV screens on it. Mm. We spoke about this last week a little bit with, with like, or during Thanksgiving with like the Cool Cats balloon totally. thing. It's like, why, why does Tezos want to be a title sponsor of Art Basel? Why is that good for Tezos or crypto in general? It's the wrong way to approach mainstream legitimacy in my opinion um any more thoughts on tezpol or should we move on um I, I think we can move on that's that sounds pretty good yeah i mean it's I, I think we'll probably return to this topic too because just like we continue to invoke kevin's name whenever um something stupid or like you said like expectations are not met in such a vigorous and obvious way um i wonder how I wonder what the life of Tezpol will continue to be. And I wonder how it will continue to like emerge as a symbol. My next current event is pretty open-ended and maybe there's nothing to say about it, but I'm just curious if you got caught any like art basil hearsay or gossip or anything that you feel is important to uh, pull out of the ether and, and, and note for ourselves and for the audience. Well, you know, um, Miami is, is certainly not equipped to handle an event of that size. Uh, 
And until you've sat in that traffic and experienced, you know, the existential dread of missing every single one of your scheduled meetings, because you thought it would be possible to go three miles in, in under anything but two hours, you know, it makes you wonder why the whole point of this is digital scalable. So I don't know, you know, I'm sure the parties were great and it's always fun to see the same people, but I think Bat Soup Yum said it best in, in kind of his recap. We shouldn't be focused on bringing over traditional art collectors. We need to be focused on the 20 year olds. Well, one would think that Miami would be the perfect place to focus on 20 year olds, but maybe they don't have the, uh, <laughs> I know, I guess they can't, they can't get into the clubs because they're not old enough, but yeah, I don't know. There's a joke there somewhere. Yeah. There's a joke in here somewhere. Please tweet us out the joke. If, uh, since we can't get it live and, uh, on the air here, last current event is absolutely frivolous and ridiculous in a completely different direction than Tezpol is obviously have no idea how legitimate this is because we don't have the data for like wash trading and things, but, um, ether rock, uh, that hundred piece, whatever you want to call it project of very clearly, I don't, I don't even know what you'd call it. They're just these like rocks. They're just pictures of rocks, but they're not real rocks. They're just like drawings of rocks. Anyways, they had like a moment a couple of years ago as like the emblem of the absolute top of this whole thing. Uh, this whole crypto cycle, people were buying these pictures of rocks for like 100 ETH and we're back to doing it. Um, there have been 250 ETH sales for an Ether rock in the last couple of days, I believe. So I'm curious in your opinion, what does that mean? What does it say? Does it mean or say anything? Um, or is it a reflection of maybe just this momentary euphoria that people are it, feeling that you don't believe back in? on the Ether rock, huh? Back back on the ether rock i i don't know you know is is ether rock a meme as timeless as crypto dick butts as all of these i you know i know there are some very important and powerful people in ether rock so what is the come on give us a name <laughs> what is the price of admission to that club i think probably they're they're all public i don't think any of these wallets are you know like people are hiding from their ether rock identities but, you know, that's cool. Whatever. Legacy assets, changing hands. It's good. I just think it's a very interesting paradigm shift that, like, we're witnessing. And, again, I feel like we do, like, a Look, weekly shift. Yeah. Yeah. It's stupid and it's childish. And a lot of this is. And it's irrational. And it's – it's and but we're here talking about it. Right? And that's – you know who wrote, like, a really beautiful thread – uh, was Meltem Demirs on Bitcoin and everybody assumes that narrative drives price, but in reality, price drives narrative. Interesting. Right? That's what we've seen for so much of this stuff, right? If you do not get momentum in price, it's then narrative builds around price. It's mm. not the other way. Well, going back to what you said about the way that you can't plan for something like Tezpol, you know, if narrative is going to build around price, is that something that can be hacked or does it have to happen organically in the way? I mean, that it's these, something that, that is constantly hacked, right? Un unfortunately, it's how the NFT market was hacked. The NFT market, the, the, the art side of it, as I saw in the beginning, was hacked by increasing sales. Yeah. You just pay more until it's willed into existence that somebody is willing to pay this amount. So there must be somebody else out there that's willing to pay this amount. And frankly, the art only needs to, to trade hands once. So it, it was not the marketplace operators going around for three years saying these things were valuable, 
right? It wasn't the narrative that was was driving the price action of of NFTs and fine art. It was it was the price, and you know that is that is maybe that is something new and novel to people, but it is just true in crypto markets, and it's true in this new world that the things that people are willing to pay the most amount of money for are the most valuable things. Uh, and do I inherently think that is wrong? Do I inherently think that, you know, we don't want to live in a world where we continue to chop things up into more exclusive, smaller segments? No, I want the things that are the most abundant to be the most valued, right? But it seems that we're going to have to kind of accelerate uh, through there. Well, let me, uh, you know, I find myself increasingly interested in how history will look back on crypto art. Um, I find myself fascinated by it. Do you think that historians of the future studying crypto art will be more interested in the price action of ether rocks and things of that ilk and assign importance to that? Or will they find more interesting tidbits in something like Tezpol, which to me is the complete opposite dynamic. Like these are the two ends of the cultural coin. One is narrative inspiring price action or, you know, price action. I'm, I don't know how much money was actually exchanged, or actually exchanged hands in this whole Tezpol fiasco, but that is narrative. Narrative arises organically, price and creation follows as opposed to Etherox where it's price happens and then narrative follows. And you could be pessimistic. Pessimism is fine. I'm just curious. Yeah, I don't, you know, it just depends. Look, again, it only takes one person, right? It only takes one person with more money willing to buy into the bag. So in the case of Ether Rocks, there's, you know, there's only 100. And again, you know, I know some of the people that are in Ether Rocks. Give uh, us a name. Give us a name. I'm sure it's all public. You, you, you can, you know, these are... Fund managers in New York, these are old time Bitcoin people. They, they take it as a point of pride that they have this thing and that it's one of the most exclusive uh, clubs and assets out there. You know, it's, yeah. it's not really different than like a Nakamoto card or one of the, the rare Lost Robbies. All of these things are, are, you know, kind of markers of prestige and power in the way that art is a social signifier. And, <clears throat> you know, crypto known for its absurdity right what is more absurd than than an ether rock it's just it's so interesting to see like what that kind of like prestige and social signaling looks like on the like financial top end of crypto which is like purchasing these ether rocks for 150 eth and getting into these like old world clubs versus a tezpol which is the same exact thing but on the like the decentralized end for the masses i suppose um yeah. Where it's pick, social pick, signaling and, and participation in the club, but it's not gated in any way. It's like meant to be spread. It's it desires to be spread as much as possible. There is no exclusivity. Choose your fighter, man. You know <laughs> who, who, who who are you? What do you represent? Who are you? And you can't be both. I don't think you can really be both. You know, but both work. Uh, both work in concert. Yeah, they they have to, right? It's like it's the two sides of the coin. There has to be one for the other to exist. It's it's just that. It's just that. Any current events that I didn't get to that you want to mention today, Colborn? Should we get out of here? Oh, that was a quick episode. Yeah, quick episode. We're trying to keep these to a tight 30. We've gone long the last couple of episodes, but I want to do it like Coinbase bites, right? Where they're like, is that Coinbase? I don't know. Someone does bites. Where they're like, yeah, they just throw information at you. What, in like 15, about, what about uh, 
I don't know if you know anything about this, but Decrypt and Rug Radio merger? I do not know anything about it. I'm willfully ignorant of all things Rug Radio, but please tell me more. I have no idea other than uh, Decrypt Media, which I think is whatever, no opinion there. Um, and Rug Radio, also no opinion there, have decided to merge. And create a monolith. <laughs> and, and create a, a veritable monopoly of crypto news and reporting. I'm sure NFT now is not thrilled, but I'm sure they'll join the party at some point because why have a competing company when you can have just one overarching company? Yeah, you know, me media and news reporting is is super tricky. I don't think anybody really makes money there. So these things are, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's natural. It's probably necessary economically, but I find it just less and less interesting. Um, I love nuanced, interesting reporting um, and I love nuanced, interesting like opinions. Um, my problem for years with so much of the writing on the internet in general is that it is intentionally voiceless. I remember like back in my freelance writing days when I was trying to get a gig somewhere, um, there's so many like indeed job posting opportunities for places like game rant or screen rant, right? Where it's like very clickbaity, very like of the moment. And it's like, write a 700 word article and we're going to take out all the voice. So it's just like base reporting of facts. And I never really understood that because I think that what we see today with like the Substack boom is that people want real relationships with writers and people want real relationships with voices. I think that's kind of the central organizing ethos of everything I do at the museum and everything we do content wise is like trying to put forth a unique voice that is not going to be for every single person because it might be vitriolic and it might be, I don't know, not super educational at times, but very personable. Um, I don't know if I succeed at that or we succeed at that, but like, that's the goal. And I find that so much more interesting, the connections you're able to make with people. You're, I mean, like, it's great that you know, Rug Radio and Decrypt will probably have a much larger audience, but what is the buy-in going to be of that audience? How much are they going to care about these two properties? And when they have a downturn, as all companies have downturns, are those people going to stick with them? Because what's the kind of information, what's the kind of voice that they're putting forth? Again, and I know very little about both of these companies, so I don't want to make an assumption um, about the quality of the content they produce, which I'm sure is very high. And I'm sure people really have a relationship with them, but I just don't think that that's I mean, that's the um, the irony of the thing, right? Is like, that's the way you survive is through conglomeration, but it's the mm -hmm. way you get less and less interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's, again, so much more interesting to have like one boots on the ground opinion than the, the consolidated, I don't know, more corporate models where you have to be really, really careful about what you're putting out. And I mean, obviously what happened, what happened in crypto art is a microcosm of probably what is happening in writing and publishing and that. You know, the dollar amounts are getting less. The competition is getting fiercer and fiercer. There's AI coming in and it seems like everybody, uh, you know, Sports Illustrated just had a massive scandal in which they had all these fake AI writers that they produced and were producing content and then their real writers got mad. So, and of course we, we saw what happened in Hollywood with the strikes. So there, yeah, is... I just, I just don't think it's that much to fear. Honestly, if you're really talented at what you do, I think people crave, I, I think reading, I think the read of writing online today as a way to disseminate information and that what people are looking for is information is completely misleading because people will get all the information they need from a headline. I do think what people en masse want is genuine connection with a writer and I just don't think you're going to get that from AI. Um, even if the even if the exact verbiage is completely the same, 
you can't get that connection because you know there's not a person on the other side. And I just think that like there's an ineffable quality to that. I think that's when we talked about this with Julian Brangold and Frenetic Void on the last podcast, but the homogeneity of um, so much AI art, even if the style is beautiful, even if the aesthetics are beautiful, it ultimately doesn't mean anything. And it ultimately um, lacks the ability to form connections with viewers and people who are absorbing that art because there is no clear mind on the other side. Um, I mean, what do like, again, just looking at artistry of all kinds and thinking that it's about the end product and how it looks, sounds, feels, tastes, etc. A Big Mac tastes really, really good, but you don't get from a Big Mac what you get from, you know, uh, I was in a tiny restaurant in Osaka where this very, very, very old lady, um, in a very, very hot and small, um, little restaurant made okonomiyaki on like um a teppanyaki grill in front of me and like it doesn't matter if like the flavor experience is the same as eating a big mac the actual experience is so much deeper because i saw that person making it you can give me that exact same food in a different environment and it's not going to reach those same heights of like meaning it just i'll never forget that but i've forgotten every single big mac i've ever had so those are the two sides of the thing and i think most people aiming towards the Big Mac or believing that the Big Mac will win out in the end, like in what sense, you know, in, in, in what, in what sense, how, where are your goalposts? Anyway, shout out to that lady that made that bang in Okonomiyaki. Um, Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, I've only, you know, it it feels like in America, everybody is almost trying to wipe all of that out. Um, And I've only really continued to experience it in, uh, in Asian countries. There's, and, and some European countries, there's still a pride in, in doing that thing the best that you can. I don't know, man. Everyone's got their bodega in New York, right? You got your bodega, man. You got your guy who whips together like um, a chicken over rice. Like, that's just meaningful. It's just it's yeah. meaningful in a way that you can't recreate uh, without like human touch. A lot of those shops that I experienced in New York in, in 2010, those nostalgia points, those you know, that might've been there since the sixties. I feel like a lot of that stuff got wiped out in COVID. Perhaps, but like, again, what will it be replaced by? There was a restaurant that opened in, I think there was a, an MIT product and it opened in Boston years ago. It was called Spice Kitchen. And it was literally robots making meals. Like yeah, they, have, sure. they had yeah, created these like robots that move these rotating pots and pans and they cooked you a bowl of something or other and then you got it. And it was really tasty. But again, why... Do you, why do we do what we do, right? Why are we attracted to the restaurants that we are, the books that we are, the writers, the music? It's not just the aesthetics at all. There is something else underneath it. Um, and we, I mean, we've now moved way past talking about decrypt and rug radio merging, Totally. but, I, but I think that the, the point remains, which is that like, it does personal connection can be gleaned from the product and, and it goes past the aesthetics. Yeah. We're, we're coming back to that. I feel that. I feel that all of this interconnectedness, all of this, I feel like AI will ruin the internet and suddenly it'll be like coming out of a trance in which people are forced to kind of come back together, sit and learn and do things for themselves individually. Uh, and it'll be so much less about observing what everybody else is doing and, and trying to like do it and learn it for yourself. 
Yeah. Well, that's the underlying like bet that we all make on crypto, right? Is that the person behind the machine is going to matter more than the machine that you want these verifications of your identity, that you want these verifications of where you've been and what you've done, because that matters. Um, the verification matters, the ability to discern between reality or the kind of reality that you're looking for. And otherwise like that matters. So I wish decrypt and rug radio all the best in their merger. Um, and I hope that they, I hope that they see what we both see, which is that pivoting towards human, more human is better because um, it may not be more econo economically viable, but for the, I don't know, the underpinning of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? That like, or maybe the top of it, whatever self-actualization is like, that shit is what people are going to strive for. And that shit's what people are going to seek out, I think. Amen. Uh, that was fun. Thanks for letting me just go on a little rant about writing and... Uh, people would have I appreciate it cool man um this is fun i enjoyed this podcast and uh, i hope you did too and i hope everyone listening did as well if you did enjoy this podcast we humbly request that you give us a like a uh, five-star review a rating a subscribe a follow there's usually a little button on whatever podcast platform you are listening to this on just click that button if it sounds like it will help us um please also give us a follow on substack uh, where we have a lot of very human writing um that's museum of crypto at Substack. I'm sorry, museum of crypto dot .substack.com. You can also collect this podcast and all of our other podcasts on Zora.co by searching the Mocha Live collection. Coburn, any last things you want to say to uh, our lovely audience before we? No last things. Left it all. Left it all on the table. Well, thank you very much for being here, Colborn. Thank you as always. And we will be back real soon with another episode of Current Events with Max and Colborn. Take care, everyone. See ya. This has been another episode of Current Events with Max and Coborn. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Coborn, as always, for being my co-host. Our intro music was composed by Julian Brangold, so a big thank you to him. And once again, thank you to all of you for being with us. We'll be back soon with another episode of Current Events. So long.